According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Can you name that tune? Name the cell phone tune in under six notes. This is the reminder for everyone to uh, check their phones. Mine was on loud. It's going to vibrate. We'll be lifting up Ethel this morning. Also, Nan Carnegie uh, had sent an email last night. We've got an assortment of folks that need... uh, need that extra measure of grace from the throne of grace. Turn to uh, John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Get your notebooks out. Get your pens ready. Get your Bibles turned to John 7. Get your cell phones put on vibrate. What other preparations do we need? That might do it. Let's start with prayer. That's the most important of all. Make sure we're in fellowship. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for the truth of your word and for the freedom our nation still enjoys, Father, the freedom to assemble together, the freedom to study your word, and at least this day, Father, the freedom to preach your word without interference. And uh, Father, the day may come when uh, restrictions may start to be placed upon us, but it is not this day. And so we pray for distractions to be set aside and we pray for concentration upon the truth We ask, Father, for eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. We lift up Ethel and, Father, uh, any others that may want to be here, but health is preventing them from being here. And Father, pray through each health circumstance that you would uh, keep the inner man strengthened day by day. Though the outer man perishes, the, uh, the inner man is renewed day by day. We thank you for that. We thank you for the way the Word of God is able to build us up and strengthen us in the inner man. And we ask that uh, that might be the, the effect on this day for the teaching of your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Neat thing about health tests, of course, everybody has them. The advantage that believers have over unbelievers is that we can keep our spirit uh, humble and obedient to the plan of God and face the test of humility with a divine viewpoint instead of the human viewpoint, the anger, and all the rest that goes with poor health. All right, John chapter 7 this morning. I've got the Logos Bible software ready to go. Let me get the slideshow running here. They have figured out that the angelic conflict gets worse on Wednesdays. Why, why is that? Okay, that doesn't look good. Let me, let me check the display settings. No, we've got display setting issues here. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 7 as we get started. Uh, folks that uh, listen to the MP3 file must figure we're kind of disorganized and crazy this morning, but that's okay. They're right, but that's okay. We uh, Let's do this. 
This will work much better. The laptop is capable of doing things that the projector can't quite uh, match in terms of screen resolution. And so it tries to, it does its best, but then it uh, comes kind of kind of goofy. All right, that should be better. John chapter 7. By the way, this is lesson number 200, I'm told. Lesson number 200 in the Life of Christ series. And so a big round number like 200 is bound to be... Uh, Impressive. So I'm kind of eager to see what the Lord's going to do here in our 200th hour in the life of Christ. All right, we're dealing with the Feast of Booths, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of the Booths was near. And in verses 3 through 9, the brothers are trying to encourage Jesus to go up and make a big splash. He says he's not going to do that. He's not here to glorify himself, and he's not going to make a big splash at the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, he even tells them he's not going. Go up yourselves. I do not go up because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up. So was he lying to them when he said he wasn't going to go? No. Or maybe he was, and yet not in a sinful sense. Maybe it's one of these Rahab lies where she can lie about the spies hiding on the roof and yet do so on a faith basis we're told in Hebrews 11 that she lied, but she did so by faith. And using faith as an instrumentality, she told her untrue statement. Well, here uh, Jesus makes a statement and says he's not going up. I believe he changed his mind, that he had no intention of going up. But after the departure of his brothers, then the conviction from God the Father said, no, you really do need to go up. And Jesus Christ was humble enough to be obedient to the Father to go up. Some uh, men or I guess women too, but some men would be so trapped by what they said that even if they think it's a mistake, well, I'm not going to go now. I said I wasn't going to go. And so uh, they might come to figure out that, you know, well, I'm supposed to be there. I know I regret saying what I said, but by golly, I said it. So I'm going to stick to what I said. Now, Jesus Christ was humble on a day by day and even a moment by moment basis that if the father wanted him to go, well, then that's all that mattered. And the statement he made, he made at the time with the information he had at the time. And there's nothing wrong with changing what you say or changing your mind or changing a position uh, so long as you are honest about it to say, look, this is what I used to believe. This is what I used to think. This is how I used to handle the, a passage. But since then, I've learned additional information. And since then, I've, I've reexamined what I thought and, and uh, I was wrong or, or I wasn't completely right. And, and, and the worst thing you can do is just simply hold to a view because you're on the record. And, well, that's what I hold. That's what I preach. That's what I'm always going to preach, no matter what evidence comes in. So he says he's not going to go, then he goes. And I think that that's uh, actually ought to be an encouragement for each one of us that things can change from day to day, even from one day to the next. And we have to be flexible and willing to be obedient if uh, indeed such changes come upon us. And uh, trust me, that's going to come to be applied in this whole building project and the whole idea of moving from this facility to wherever the Lord takes us. There's going to be some changes involved. And some of them might be day to day, hour to hour. Or, oh, we're not going to do this. Oh, we're not going to do that. And uh, before we're done, we'll either be uh, completely bald, having pulled our hair out, or we'll maybe be a little bit relaxed with some grace orientation. 
All right, so he goes up, and he doesn't make a big splash. He goes up in secret, and he holds his tongue for about half the feast. It's a week-long feast. And then in the midst of the feast, verse 14 says, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Now, we're going to have to examine today whether they recognized him right off the bat or not. The Jews were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? And it's possible that they did not yet realize that he was Jesus. They say, well, who is this illiterate, uneducated teacher? And not putting together two and two that actually this was Jesus. We get a hint on that in verse uh, 25 and 26. Uh, 26 says, look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? And I think by the time we get through with verse 26, we'll be... Um, I think we'll be on more solid ground in relating verse 26 to verse 15. I think there's a knowledge of who he is without a knowledge of who he is. In other words, they know that he's Jesus of Nazareth. They know that he's the Galilean carpenter with the fishermen disciples. They know that he's the one that teaches with authority. They know he's the one that does signs and wonders from the Father. They know all of this. But they are not willing to assign the title Messiah, the Hebrew Mashiach, the Greek Christos. They're not ready to assign him as the anointed one, the expected one. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? And the question is phrased in a manner that actually expects a positive response. The... uh, As far as the crowds are concerned, or the inhabitants of Jerusalem are concerned, they... uh, They follow their leaders. They follow their religious leaders. They're dependent on their religious leaders. What they say goes. If they say, you know, jump, they ask how high. That's the the nature of legalism. And if that's your cult, if that's your religion, then you thrive on that and you need that. The idea that your leaders can be wrong then becomes a problem if you're idolizing them and you're jumping at every whim. And so they know what their leaders are up to, But just the threat, the danger, the thought, what if this guy really is the Christ? See, that puts the crowd into trouble. Because then the crowd has to decide either the rulers are doing this ignorantly or they're doing this intentionally. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but we'll, we'll deal with that here in a moment. All right, we have gone through so far four points of study, really five points of study. And did I give you the subpoints of five? Just A. Okay, well then let's get right back to that. Um, and we'll just advance through the slides here fast enough. One, two, three, Herod's Temple, four. Can't get over this enough how they questioned his credentials, and he had the most incomparable credentials on the planet just because he didn't have their degree on the wall just because he didn't have their diploma did not mean that he was uh, an idiot did not mean that he was uneducated he just was not part of their school see and, and it's no different every country has it every culture has it. every society has it in this nation of course it's uh, it's the ivy league which is head and shoulders above everything else and if you have a degree that's fine but it's not as much as an ivy league degree, for example, depending on your line of work. Well, 
he was not of the school of Shammai. He was not of the school of Hillel. He was not of the two leading schools of, uh, of Jewish uh, doctrine. And so as such, he was uneducated. If you didn't have one of those two degrees, you didn't have one as far as they were concerned. I guess today, what would we say? Either uh, Harvard or Yale, probably, for the top two, or, or in the tech, in the sciences, either MIT or, or Caltech, right? Everything else, well, that's nice. <laughs> Got a nice little science and engineering program there, but it's not MIT or it's not Caltech, and so it just kind of gets relegated to uh, the also-ran category. Well, he turns the tables on him with his inscrutable record, with his, with his doctrine, with his knowledge and his credentials. And he asks, if you guys are so educated, why aren't you doing the law? See, realizing that they majored in the law. That's their degree. That's their major. That's their doctorate. Post-doctorate. All right? And yet, they don't carry out the law. And the, the question has such a bite to it, it's just, you could not hurt or insult a Pharisee any more than this. No one carries out the law. Why? Well, the law is summarized with positive actions, namely, loving God and loving your neighbor. And they were doing neither. And so they were not law practitioners. And if you are not a law practitioner, you're a law violator. And that's bad news under the law. What happens to someone who violates the law? Under the law, they're put to death. And instead, they were seeking his death. All right, we get to the shock then under point five. The crowds were shocked by his statement. He says, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries it out? No one of you does the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, in other words, why do you seek to kill me? You're the ones that should be killed. You're the, the lawbreakers. You're the ones that aren't doing the law. Why do you seek to kill me? I mean, truly, the one who came to fulfill the law? The crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. So they are shocked, absolutely shocked. But the expression they use to express their disbelief is actually a reflection of something that the Pharisees themselves had been trying to spread. So subpoint A, they are clearly under the Jewish religious leaders' influence. They are clearly under the Jewish le uh, religious leaders' Influence. They have, at least on two previous occasions, possibly more, spread the stories that Jesus was a demoniac. And those stories got spread. So the first thing that they utter, you have a demon. See, the first thing they utter, you always get that glimpse as to what's in the heart by what comes out of the mouth, by what gets uttered. See, and, uh, you know, something bad happens and first thing that comes out of your mouth is Scripture. That's a good thing. That shows that your mind occupies with Scripture. Or something horrible is happening and the first thing that comes out is, hey, let's pray about this. That's a good thing. It shows that your mind cycles doctrine and your thinking is wrapped around God's Word and prayer. And, and that's a reflection. The first thing out of your mouth is a reflection of what's in your heart. See... As opposed to, you know, a guy cuts you off in traffic and you employ the tactical army vocabulary of what the very polite, genteel civilian world would call profanity. And you're all very distinguished Christian 
church-going people here on a Wednesday morning, civilian, you have your language, which is more refined and dignified and, and considerate and polite. See? But if filth comes out of your mouth, what's in your heart? What's in your mind? What were you, you weren't cycling doctrine when that, when that event took place. What were you doing? All right, let's look at Matthew 9 real quickly. This won't take long. Because I think the, the, the real crux of what we're going to deal with today is going to come under point 6, not under, not under point 5. But in Matthew chapter 9, this was an episode back in the Galilean ministry. Verse 32 says, um, see, it comes down to the news. Uh, verse 31, they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. So he's, he's gaining some good press. And the Pharisees have a big, big problem with that because image is everything for them. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed, and they were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And that's a true statement. It's a reflection of their amazement, but it also is rather insulting to the Pharisees. Because what have they been doing all these years? <laughs> they've been teaching. They've been running people's lives. They've been uh, telling people how what they need to do. They've been demonstrating how to be a perfect uh, legalist, law-observing, you know, righteous in your own eyes and the eyes of man kind of servant. But they've never cast out demons. They haven't done miracles. They haven't done great things to glorify God. The Pharisees get kind of offended when they say, oh, we've never seen anything like this before. See, it can be an insulting statement if you think about it, if you take it that way. All right. It'd be like a politician getting in trouble. About a month ago, um, Michelle Obama got in trouble. With a statement she says, she talked about for the first time in her adult life, she's proud of this country. And so some reporters started saying, well, wait a minute, you're 34 years old. There's been nothing, uh, or 39 years old, I don't know how old she is, but if, if you're this age and you've never had any proud moment up till now, well, what about such and such? What about such and such? What about, you know, there's, there are some good things you can think about, aren't there? <laughs> anyway, I'm going to get political on you this morning, but... Anyway, that not only did it get her in trouble, which it should have, I suppose, but it also upset Hillary. Because, you know, there were eight Clinton years there in the White House. Can't you say, weren't, weren't you proud of those years? You know, and she says, no, right now, 2007, when she made the statement, was the first time she's ever been proud of her country. So that means the whole Clinton era was something she wasn't proud of. Anyway, people can get insulted. The point I'm trying to make is that people can get insulted. Do we have any election officials in the hallway? <laughs> Last week we had a government officer sitting out there in the hallway for 20 minutes of class. All right. Um, people can get insulted. And when they get insulted, they can get ugly. And this is what's happening here with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were saying he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. He's involved in demonism. Okay. which I, th I find to be interesting. Of course, it's not true in his case, but it is true, I think, in a lot of Pentecostal circles, in a lot of faith healing situations, where the, the sickness is brought about by a demon to begin with. 
that makes people lame or blind or mute or what have you. And so somebody's physically afflicted by this demon and a shuckster comes along and says, hey, you know, I'm going to cast out this demon. I'm going to heal you. And what do you know? It works. Well, of course it works. But it's a setup all the way all the way around from beginning to end. All right. Next chapter over in Matthew 11. And, and this is where you learn that you cannot make them happy. Whatever you do won't work. If it's A or B, neither one's going to work. This is one of those, you're, um, yeah, you're, you're darned if you do and darned if you don't, right? That's the, that's the idiom, that's the expression. And so he says, what? Shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. And so little kid games where they call names and sing songs. And they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not mourn. As if Jesus was there to dance to their tune. As if they called the shots. Now, if you're the musician and you start playing a, a lively a lively kind of uh musical piece of some sort, you can control what the dancers do based on the music you're playing. You know, they're not going to waltz if you're given some, you know, high speed, rapid, you know. And then likewise, if you do slow things down and they're trying to do a, a fast kind of dancing or whatever, and you totally throw them off track by changing the music on them. You say, well, that's not going to work. So, the, the, the musicians always drive the dancers, not the other way around. And here they're saying, this is what Jesus is using to illustrate, saying, we're not dancers for you. We're not here to entertain you or amuse you or to follow your lead in music selection. And he uses the example of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was under a lifelong Nazarite vow, which meant no alcohol ever, not a drop from the day he was born. And John came neither eating nor drinking. Now, neither eating. What does that mean? He never ate. Uh, he wouldn't live long if he never ate, right? But neither eating nor drinking, meaning that not, um, he was under the strict dietary restrictions of the Nazarite vow. In fact, his diet was locusts and honey. And, and I hope he gets rewarded for that in glory because that, well, that was a rough work assignment here on earth. And neither eating nor drinking. By drinking there, meaning, like, and consistent with Numbers chapter 6 and the Nazarite vow, he consumed zero alcohol. And that doesn't make them happy. They say, uh, you know, he has a demon. See, they're quick to throw around these charges of demonism. When who's behind the, the religious leader's doctrine? It's a doctrine of demons that promotes things contrary to the things of the Father. Then the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. Now, what does that mean? That means he was not under dietary restrictions. He was free to eat any food to his taste and choice in keeping with Mosaic law, of course, and drinking. If you ever have a, a brother or sister or a Christian that tells you that Jesus never touched a drop of alcohol, this verse says they're wrong. That the contrast is John the Baptist on the one hand was the teetotaler. He was the non-drinking, 100% abstinent, no alcohol individual. Jesus Christ consumed alcohol. Of course, that doesn't make them happy. They say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. 
Now, one thing you can't say about the Pharisees, they weren't stupid, they weren't idiots. If he was a non-drinking, never-touch-a-drop teetotaler, they would never call him a drunkard. It would make no sense. Pharisees aren't idiots, they're just um, off track based on their legalism. A friend of tax collectors and sinners, see. So, nothing makes them happy. Nothing makes them happy. If you spend your life trying to make an unbeliever happy, give up on that. Rather, spend your life glorifying Jesus Christ by portraying Him in your life, in your words, in your thoughts, in your actions. Portray Christ. It's not going to make the unbeliever happy, but it will give them a witness and testimony that hopefully will go hand in hand with a verbal testimony that may pierce through that veil of darkness. All right, so again, verse 18 specifically shows that these religious leaders were quick to use the term demoniac. Say, oh, he's got a demon. He's got a demon. And so when we get to, back to John 7:20, then, and he says, you seek to kill me, first thing out of their mouth, you have a demon. You have a demon. It shows the influence. It shows the um, effect that hearing these stories over and over and over again, even if you don't believe it, you've heard it, your mind has digested it. See, this is the horrible thing about slander. You can hear the most, the worst rumors about somebody. See, absolute worst rumors about somebody. And, um, and it's happened here. As a pastor, I've had to deal with it. I've had to deal with phone calls saying, you've got a church member and they do this or they do that. What are you going to do about it? Say, well, you know, and it's interesting, too, because you find, you, you find out there's no truth to any of it. And you say, well, all right, this is how slander works, isn't it? This is how the adversary creeps in. But the horrible part about slander is even when it's demonstrated to be, to be slander, the idea is still there. And then years later, something happens and it gets added to what you knew to be false but because this other thing happens, you go, oh, wait a minute. That's horrible. It leaves the thought in the mind, even if it's proven false, the slander will leave the thought in the mind to be worked with later on. That's why you don't even want to listen to the slander. And as church members, I encourage no one, don't even listen to it. See, you know, a shepherd has to listen to it and check it out. If, in fact, there's truth to it and there's people in trouble, then... then uh, you know, wives or children or folks that could be in trouble, then the shepherd has to look into it. But if, if you don't have to look into it, if it's not your gift, your ministry, or your work assignment, then don't even listen to it. Don't give it an ear because it'll sit there, which is horrible. All right. Secondly, now, under B, the crowds are unaware of the hatred and murder their leaders were intending. Who seeks to kill you? They are absolutely unaware. They don't even know that the plot is in the works. Those are the crowds. Hoi akloi, the crowds. We've introduced them before. However, there are some inhabitants of Jerusalem who knew of it. They did know of it. And we have that admission that comes up in verse 25. Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? So you've got all these crowds that are simply in town for the feast. They're here for the Feast of Tabernacles. They're not from here. 
they're not familiar with um, the, pol- the local politics. They don't know what the, uh, the, the latest schemes are. But it's the local inhabitants of Jerusalem, some people of Jerusalem were saying, they did know of it. We have that hint in verse 25. And I think their knowledge of it, they know it's going to happen, leads them to ask the question that they ask in verse 26. That um, question about, um, do they know that he is the Christ? In other words, do they know that and they're going to kill him anyway? See, if the Pharisees think that he's not the Christ then they're simply executing a heretic. If, if the Pharisees are convinced that this Jesus guy is a false teacher, a false prophet, well, the law says to stone a false prophet. So if, if the Pharisees believe that he's dangerous, that he's, a, that he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, or that he's, he's leading the people astray as a false prophet, well, then they are in their, theoretically, in their rights to put him to death. Okay? Even though, although admittedly, the Pharisees are not the uh, not God's authority in the land. They have taken that authority for themselves. They can at least convince the, the people that, that they're in charge and that they can put people to death. See, that's if they think he's a fraud. But if they know he's the Christ and they still want to put him to death anyway. Well, wait a minute. Now, what are they doing? And the crowds are starting to wake up to that to say, wait a minute. Do they know that he's the Christ and they want to put him to death anyway? That's a whole different ballgame right there. And now the crowds are starting to say, that can't be right. If he's the Christ, then we need to we need to humble ourselves. We need to worship. We need to bow before the Lord our God. So if they know he's the Christ, this could be trouble. The crowds are starting to wake up. They're starting to wake up now. Before we get to this question of theirs in verses 25 and 26, and then the, uh, see, what's really neat is that he stays faithful. He keeps teaching. He's patient with these crowds in spite of their leaders. And then they finally put it together to say, you know what? He has to be the Christ. There is nobody doing the miracles this guy is doing. And so by verse 31, many of the crowd were believing in him. It's a tremendous revival, but he had to risk his life to get that, to get there. Before we get to those verses, though, under point six, I want to explore verses 21 and following. Point six. Jesus rebukes the Jews for their failure to respond to his previous rebuke. Point six. Jesus rebukes the Jews, and by Jews we understand the religious, Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, Jesus rebukes the Jews for their failure to respond to his previous rebuke. And what you'll do is you'll take John 7, 21 through 24, as, a, uh, as the boundary for this issue here, and then relate it back to chapter 5. And I listed verses 39 through 47, but there's actually a context prior to John 5, 39 that we'll need to look at. But he rebukes the Jews for their failure to respond to his previous rebuke. And that's an interesting pattern. If someone doesn't respond to a rebuke, what do you do? 
Let it go? Say, oh, well. Or do you follow up? Is there an additional rebuke? Because the first rebuke is still valid until a change of thinking takes place. And now you've got to add another rebuke on top of that for not listening to the word of the Lord. Being disobedient to the authority that has rebuked you in the first place. Now you've got the double compound discipline getting administered there. All right? So verse 21, after they said, you have a demon who seeks to kill you, Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. I did one deed and you all marvel. Now, Jesus, of course, did dozens of deeds. He did hundreds of miracles. But the one deed he's talking about, so point A, one deed is a reference to Jesus' most recent work of power in Jerusalem. That's what's got them all in a tizzy. It happened a year and a half prior to this event. It happened in the last Passover that he was in Jerusalem for. When he healed the man by the pool of Bethesda. One deed. So subpoint A. One deed is a reference to Jesus' most recent work of power in Jerusalem. When he healed the man by the pool of Bethesda. John 5, 39-47. As I say, the context actually is quite a bit earlier than verse 39. But the the preaching, the rebuke that came, I think we can focus, narrow the focus down to verses 39 through 47 in John 5. I did one deed and you all marvel. Marvel. <laughs> you know, uh, and there's nothing wrong with marveling, I suppose. Marveling is in itself not sinful, but it should not be the limit to our response. If the word of God goes forth, maybe, maybe you marvel. That's fine. I, uh, I even... Uh, see, here's the problem with marveling. Marveling comes and goes. And I'll illustrate. A week ago, I listened to a Stan Newton message. Uh, they put their audio files on the website, same as we do. And so occasionally I browse other churches and pastors, see what they're teaching, see what they're up to, how their churches are going. It's like um, stealth website uh, church visitation. I can't physically go to North Carolina, but I can browse a website and look over their schedule, see what they're teaching. I'm interested. What, what doctrines are they in? What passages are they in? How are they doing? If they've got audio files on there, well, then that's why they're there. They're there for me to listen to, right? So I download and listen. And um, there was a point about halfway through the message where I marveled. It was a topic. It was a line of, of, of reasoning through a, a, a passage. And, and it was just, it, it was a particular twist that I'd never thought of before. And I thought, wow, I had never looked at it in, from that perspective. I thought, wow, that is cool. I marveled. Now, ask me what it was about. Ask me now, nine days later, this was a week ago Monday, it's been nine days since I marveled. And you could put a gun to my head this morning and I cannot remember. I cannot remember. I would have to go back to listen to it again and try to remember. Oh, that's what made me marvel. Okay. Marveling is a reactionary experience, but that's not why we're under the authority of the teaching of the Word of God. If doctrine is being taught, we're supposed to digest the content, add it to our doctrine residency, add it to our frame of reference, 
make use of it in our thinking and start making application in our lives. Because if, if all you're doing is just coming to sit and soak up an experience and then go, wow, when the speaker comes up with a moment of brilliance or whatever or something, you know, those could be few and far between. I think a lot of pastors get in trouble if they start craving those moments. You know, where you come up with something and people go, ooh, right? It's like amening in the particular churches. There's some pastors, you get them on a roll with a couple of amens here and there, and then they start feeding off of it. I did one deed and you all marvel. It's been a year and a half since he healed that man by the pool of Bethesda. (laughs) So how, in the last year and a half, how... Have these Jewish people in Jerusalem adapted, adjusted, taken the teaching, recognized the Christ is among them, and started and started preparing for the kingdom of heaven at hand? They have not. In fact, they've been they've been spending the last eighteen months plotting his demise. So, this is the one deed reference to his most recent work. Let's. Uh, he says, uh, before I get into his explanation, because he's brilliant when he talks about Moses here, he has another moment where we can marvel at, at his logic in 22 and 23. But let's go back to John 5. The Pool of Bethesda, Bethsaida, Bethzatha, whatever spelling you want to give it, with five porticos. And here's a sick guy. And uh, for 38 years, and so far as the Pharisees are concerned, he's been sick 38 years. There's no hurry. (laughs) He doesn't have to get healed today. Wait till tomorrow. Today's the Sabbath. That's the Jewish perspective. What's the hurry? He's been sick all this time anyway. Big deal. He can can be sick one more day. And Jesus' attitude was like, no, this guy's been sick for 38 years already. One more day is one day too many. Let's heal them now. And this doesn't violate the Sabbath. In many respects, we'll see this is exactly what the Sabbath is for. The Sabbath is not only a good day to heal a guy. It's the best day to heal a man on. Because the Sabbath is, speaks of rest and it speaks of recognition of what God has accomplished. It's the most appropriate day for healing in the, in the week. And so he said, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Blah, blah, blah. Excuses, excuses. And uh, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Forget the pool. Forget the stirring of the waters. Forget the legends about an angel and all this other stuff. Just get up and go. The sovereign God of the universe is restoring your physical health. And immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. And you think, what a reason to celebrate. Let's praise God. Let's give God the glory. Great things he hath done. Except you turn the page, and on top of page 146, it says, now it was the Sabbath on that day. Oops. Okay. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Pallet carrying breaks the Sabbath can't point to a verse but that's their rule that's their interpretation of a verse but he answered them he who made me well was the one who said to me pick up your pallet and walk in other words the one with god's power 
the one with God's authority told me to do this. The same one who, the same God who gave the law, the same God who prescribed the Sabbath is the same God who directed me to take my pallet home. Well, who is the man who did this? Well, I don't know. I didn't catch his name. Then Jesus later on finds him in the temple, uses the opportunity to say, oh, by the way, your sickness was a, was divine discipline for your carnality. Change your sin pattern or the disease is coming back. So once the man finds out it was Jesus, he's able to go and report Jesus is the one who did this. And so the Jews were persecuting Jesus in verse 16 because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, persecuting him. And this is what really lights the spark. In verse 17, he answered them, My father is working until now. I myself am working. He's a fellow worker with God the Father. God the Father is working. Jesus is doing his work. Remember, the Sabbath was supposed to be a day for doing the Father's work. You don't do your own work so that you can do the Father's work. You can focus on Him. You can worship. You can study. You can, you can lead your family in spiritual realms on the Sabbath day because you're not um, pursuing your own career, your own economics. And that's what Jesus is doing. He says, I'm, I'm a servant of God the Father. I'm the Father's work and I'm working. And so uh, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Every time the people today try telling me that Jesus never claimed to be God, I said, well, you guys are pretty stupid then, because the Pharisees knew that he was claiming to be God. That's why they, part of why they wanted to kill him. And then they were clearly in a much better position than these modern scholars to figure out what Jesus was claiming and what he wasn't claiming. All right. Um, I haven't gone down through the rest of this yet. The, uh, there's a lot more teaching in here. There's some back and forth. And every time they react, he just gives, gives it to them again, harder and harder each time. And then he says, um, let me pick it up with, uh, because he talks about the different people testifying. Verse 33, you sent to John, he testified to the truth. And then verse 36, he says, you know, I've got a greater witness than the witness of John. The Father has given me these miracles. They testify about me. Now, John the Baptist was an undeniable prophet. And everyone was amazed at the power of his message. And he was telling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven was in hand. And all Jerusalem was going out to be baptized in the river Jordan. And John had an amazing ministry. He bore witness to the Christ. That witness was not alone. That witness went with the, the miracles Jesus did. And if those weren't enough, the Father testified. He actually opened up the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. But you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. They didn't have ears to hear the Father's testimony. Then he says in verse 39, You search the Scriptures. This is where the rebuke comes in. It's the same rebuke he gives them in chapter 7. But he gives it to them here for the first time in chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So how many witnesses does he have? He has the Baptist, John the Baptist. He has uh, the miracles. He has God the Father's own voice. He has now the scriptures. 
And all the witnesses are all in agreement. You can come to no other conclusion. If you listen to all these, all the testimony from all these witnesses and still say, nope, he's not the Christ, you're willfully rejecting the revealed Christ because the testimony is unanimous. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. They, they dedicate their lives to studying the scriptures, but they don't know the scriptures. They memorize what it said, but they don't digest what it means. To them, the scriptures are simply the tool to control people's lives. And fail to miss the fact that the scriptures are the testimony of Jesus Christ. This passage is one that, that I, I go to very frequently because we're a Bible church. We're a doctrinal teaching Bible church and we teach line upon line, precept upon precept. But I don't want to get so deep into the scriptures that I've lost the message. What are the scriptures? What is the Bible saying? Who is the Bible revealing? What is the Bible communicating? And if I get so lost in the details that I lose the message, I'm in trouble. I'm no better than these guys. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You are unwilling. The consequences of their volition or lack of positive volition, their negative volition. See, you are unwilling to come. Now, this passage takes more work than I'm going to give it today. Some people really struggle with verse 40. And their theology book actually tells them that they, they could not be unwilling to come. That they're not able to will anything. And so their theology book tells them that they can't come or they can't be willing. Jesus says they're not willing, that they are unwilling. Anyway, that's more than we're going to get into today, but... Um, Regardless of what certain theology books said, Jesus said they were unwilling to come. All right. So the key is, is you have to search the scriptures and you have to uh, place your faith in that which has been revealed. Verse 46, the last bit of this chapter here in chapter five, verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you before the father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. That's their indictment right there. They were Moses worshipers, Moses idolaters. And yet they weren't obedient to the message that God communicated through Moses. They set their hope on a man instead of placing their faith in the revealed word of God. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So they have a humility issue, a problem with humility. They reject the authority of Scripture. They will not place their faith in Scripture. They will not be obedient to Scripture. They're not willing to be obedient to Scripture. And so when the living and abiding Word of God is standing before them, they treat Him the same way they treat the written Scriptures. That He's there for them to manipulate. If they can use Him, they'll use Him. If they can't use Him, they've got no use for Him. So that was their rebuke. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
You know, that's that's a rebuke for doctrinal churches. Bible study in itself doesn't edify you. Are you shocked? Bible study does not. You see, what I'm trying to say is you've got to do something with the Bible study after you're done with it. You've got to apply the word that you learn. You have to live what you learn. You have to exhale what you inhale. If all you are is a hearer only, you're self-delusional. All right, that's the rebuke in chapter 5. Rebuke comes back in chapter 7. They didn't listen the first time. And in between chapter 5 and chapter 7, he, he never does come back to Jerusalem again. There was a Passover that went by, but he didn't go. He stayed out of the uh, territory there across the Sea of Galilee up on the mountain and he fed the 5,000 and did not go to Jerusalem for Passover AD 32. First Passover in his life, he did not go to Jerusalem. So this is his first reappearance back in Jerusalem since that event. And he says, I did one deed and you all marvel. All right, verse 22. Again, Moses is the rebuke. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? And he summarizes it with verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Righteous judgment. We need to judge with righteous judgment. We've got a whole series on judgments and viewpoints, and it comes out of this concept. We're supposed to be judged with righteous judgment. We should show judgment. The, the cosmos has turned judgment into a bad word. It's a very bad word. You don't want to be judgmental. Judgmental people are bad. Open-minded, tolerant, accepting, liberal people are good. If you're judgmental, ooh, that's bad. That's medieval, that's primitive, that's Neanderthal. They can't decide if we're medieval or if we're Neanderthal. It's just crazy. Judgment is good. You should have good judgment. I respect a man that has good judgment. And good judgment means you're discerning, meaning you evaluate, meaning you approve what's right, you reject what's wrong, you make good decisions. All right, I've gone green again. I think it's this thing. All right, but good judgment. We want good judgment. There's nothing bad about judgment. All right. So what's he saying here? Let me uh, spell it out in a subpoint here. Point B. True obedience to God. True obedience to God in one aspect of the Christian way of life. Any aspect. Pick one. True obedience to God in one aspect of the Christian way of life is not disobedience to God in any other aspect of the Christian way of life. If you're obeying God, truly obeying God, then you are not disobeying God. You can't be. God is not the author of confusion. God, 
uh, does not say uh, give you a yes and a no and expect you to, to be schizophrenic and go two different ways at the same time. True obedience to God in one aspect of the Christian way of life is not disobedience to God in any other aspect of the Christian way of life. In other words, when he healed that man by the pool, he was obeying God the Father. And so he wasn't disobeying God by breaking the Sabbath. Disobeying, breaking the Sabbath would be disobeying God. You follow that? Anyone dispute that? If you break the Sabbath, you're disobeying God, right? So, if you're obeying God, you can't be obeying God and disobeying God. True obedience. And the example he gave here was the example of circumcision. Which was a good example because the Pharisees themselves had wrestled with it and they had actually had to come to a choice and they decided that, uh, here's what they decided, you're going to love this, okay? Circumcision. You have a little boy. He's born. On the eighth day, you take him to the temple. You, you offer the offering. You have to redeem the firstborn. You have to pony up the bucks, uh, redeeming the firstborn with cash or uh, animal sacrifice. All right. You redeem the firstborn and you circumcise the male child on the eighth day. On the eighth day. So, here's the problem. Every boy born on a Friday, every single boy born on a Friday in the history of Fridays, if you're born on a Friday, what's the eighth day? It's going to be Saturday the following week, yeah. So every single boy born on a Friday, that becomes a problem. Now the parents have to say, well, wait a minute, hmm, what do we do? We have to circumcise our boy, but it's the Sabbath. Are we breaking the Sabbath? If we take him, to, is this work? If we go to the temple and, and circumcise our boy, is that work? Are we, are we violating the Sabbath? So they had this conundrum, this little puzzle, right? They say, well, we don't want to disobey God by breaking the Sabbath. And we don't want to disobey God by not circumcising our boy on the eighth day. You know, what if we, can we move it up to Friday before the Sabbath starts? Well, it's only the seventh day that disobeys. It's the eighth day. The eighth day. Why is the eighth day significant? Why do we worship on Sunday? What's so important about the eighth day? All right. Um, should we wait till Sunday? No, that's nine days. That boy was born on a Friday. He has to be circumcised on a Saturday. And so they searched the scriptures. They debated it. And here's what the, the Pharisees came up with and the Sadducees, the different groups. There was, by and large, agreement on this is that circumcised on the Sabbath, that's fine. That's not violating the Sabbath because... It's obeying God. And if you're obeying God, you're not breaking the Sabbath. And so what's Jesus telling him here about healing the guy by the pool? I'm obeying God. The works the Father gave me, these are the works I'm doing. And if he doesn't heal the man on the Sabbath, he'd be disobeying God. And he can't say, oh, sorry, God can't obey you, it's the Sabbath. I'll heal the guy tomorrow. It's the assignment to do it today. So this is the principle. True obedience to God. And see, this is where, this is where uh, in some cases, we have to balance and pray and give it to the Father and ask Him to search us, show us where we're wrong. If other um, conflicts arise, 
We're not going to face, you and I aren't going to face that eighth day circumcision Sabbath thing. But maybe another conflict will arise and we're going to say, wow, I want to be obedient to my father. And I want to be, and I don't want to be disobedient, but now I'm kind of in an either or. What do I do? What do I do? And you take that to the father in prayer and say, here you are. And in ladies' class, it's, it's good that this comes up because a lot of times in ladies' class, it happens hard. It, it hits the, the wives. And um, who they want to obey God. Scripture says, honor your, uh, uh, your husband. Submit to your husband. And what if he has different priorities? You want to come to Bible class and he wants to go bowling or whatever. And so what do you do? Say, well, God says not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. I don't want to neglect Bible class. If I skip Bible class when I know I should be in Bible class, then I'm disobeying. But God also says, obey your husbands. (laughs) So if I if I if I throw a, 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 a hissy fit, can I say that hissy fit? Okay. Um, I used an expression a month ago and people said, that's not good. Don't use that in church. Um, but if, if, uh, if, if, if the wife decides, you know what, I'm just going to throw a little hissy fit and put my foot down and make him mad and have a big fight and then get my way. Oh yeah, that, that glorifies Christ. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Use, use carnal methods to, uh, yeah. Then you go to Bible class and yeah, you're in, you're in great shape for humility before the word of God. So what do you do? You go to the Father in prayer. Say, Father, I want to be obedient. I want to be obedient in every aspect of my life. And you say, here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it. And if I'm wrong, then convict me of that. And show me how to make a better decision next time. But this time, this is my decision. And this is why. And if, if, I'm, if I have your blessings in this, then the peace of Christ which surpasseth all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If I am right in this choice, then Father, bless that. Give me a peace of mind in that decision. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in that which he approves. Romans 14. So this is the choice I'm making. This is why I'm making it. If I'm wrong, you better convict me. And if this is pleasing in your sight, then then confirm in my heart, give me a peace about the decision I made. Because true obedience to God in one aspect of the Christian way of life is not disobedience to God in any other aspect. Now, you can't use this as an excuse, though. This is what I'm running out of time. You can't use this as an excuse. That's why I use the phrase true obedience. Some people have what they call obedience, but it's not true obedience. For instance, a man that says, oh, well, I'm supposed to provide for my family, so I'm just going to. Work and work and work and work uh, 98 hours a week and I'm not going to take my family to church. I'm not going to lead in home devotions. I'm not going to uh, be a spiritual leader in my home because, well, I'm, I'm, I'm working. I'm making money. I'm supporting my family. Is that obedience? It's not true obedience. He might be partially kind of sort of obedient in one aspect, but he's supposed to be obedient in every aspect and not violate another area. In this case, he's neglecting his wife and children by a pseudo-obedience rather than a true obedience to God. All right, then finally, 
point C. Judging with righteous judgment means that an instructed believer makes a righteous decision. Judging with righteous judgment means that an instructed believer, if you're not under teaching, you can't judge with righteous judgment. You must be an instructed believer. You must be a disciple. Point C. Judging with righteous judgment means that an instructed believer makes a righteous decision. A righteous decision in life. Based upon a comprehensive and mature knowledge of God himself. Based upon a comprehensive and mature knowledge of God himself. Not just knowing what God says, but what does God mean by what he says? What does God think? What pleases God? Every aspect of who God is. A mature knowledge of God himself. And there'll be more on that, um, but I'm out of time. This is judging with righteous judgment. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. We'll have more next week. We'll then talk about the uh, conflict, how he stays faithful, how he reaps a harvest, which is ultimately why the Father directed him there. So these folks would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay, well that got us down through verse 24. Not, not too bad. It's a long chapter. This episode takes us down through verse 52. We had a lot of verses coming up. But next week we'll get to verses 25 and following. Uh, the people of Jerusalem start to wake up. They start to suspect that their leaders know he's the Christ and are trying to kill him anyway. And they start to actually place their faith in him. And uh, and that's where the Pharisees finally say, we got to stop this. Because they're starting to lose uh, a handle on the Jerusalem inhabitants. And that's where they've got to draw the line. So we'll, we'll deal with that also. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this day, for the truth of your word. Thank you for our time together. Pray for application. We've sat in a Bible study. But Father, we need to make use of the equipping you've supplied. So, Father, equip us. Open our eyes. Uh, make clear in our thinking uh, occasions and events and circumstances in which application can be made so that in living the Word of God, we portray uh, our love for our Savior, our obedience to your sovereignty, and our devotion to your plan. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.